Eric, man, welcome to the episode. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Well, you wrote a hell of an article that I think really deserves uh, discussion across a lot of platforms and dissemination to clients and people who are interested in this topic. And I think it's gonna, I'm not, I was gonna say that it was gonna create a lot of stir, but um, it, it isn't, it doesn't sound like it's very, like after reading it, it didn't seem like a very controversial uh, conclusion based on the current evidence, but obviously that's something we're gonna dive into today. But for my listeners, um, they're probably a little bit like one standard deviation away from your regular listener. Somebody might not be an avid listener of the podcast or subscribe to Mass. And I definitely have a lot of coaches uh, who listen to the podcast as well, but give a little background uh, of yourself and who you are and what you do, uh, and then we'll jump into things. My name's Eric. I've uh, been coaching for a long time, been studying exercise and nutrition for a long time. And I am currently the director of education at Stronger by Science. I'm a co-author of the Mass Research Review, and I'm a co-developer of the Macro Factor Diet app. Um, and like you said, I wrote a big old article about reverse dieting, uh, metabolic adaptation, that whole kind of umbrella of concepts was, uh, I mean, I've been publishing in that area since 2014, uh, both in peer-reviewed literature and uh, just in blog post, basically. Um, so it, it's had my attention for a long time. Uh, I thought that this article might, um, it, the, the, it, the, there was no goal to uh, create any controversy. It was just to kind of say, hey, here's my take on the literature. But I assumed it would um, lead to some amount of discussion or argument uh, just because it uh, pretty strongly rejects a lot of claims that people make about reverse dieting. And uh, much to my surprise, nobody cares. <laughs> like, <laughs> Are you like, surprised uh, though? No, just kidding. Uh, but no, I, I kind of, I was like, dude, like somebody pushed back in any substantive way and just nobody is. Um, so it, it's kind of just like, I think a lot of people who make money off of reverse dieting view it as a very inconvenient thing that, that this article was published, but no one has actually tried to really like substantively critique it or rebut uh, any particular argument that I made, uh, which is fine. You know, it, it is what it is, but we'll, we'll go through it today and see if people learn something and hopefully they do. I, I just think there's probably a correlation between the kind of person who is like balls deep in this reverse dieting proportion of, you know, pushing this and the kind of person who would also come up with a really substantive response to this. And so just feel, or, or wouldn't come up with a really substantial response to this, but that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, so I think this is, obviously we're gonna talk about reverse dieting today, but I think in order to talk about reverse dieting, we need to have some at least baseline operational discussion of, and it's gonna be more than that because the whole discussion is based around metabol metabolic adaptation. Um, and so that's definitely what we're gonna talk about today, but I do think we're gonna go through some very specific scenarios. So let's kick it off with what is the theoretical case for reverse dieting and what are some of the common claims often purported by supporters or advocates or what have you of reverse dieting? Yeah, so... Uh... With reverse dieting, it's kind of an offshoot of the metabolic adaptation literature. So in a nutshell, very, very brief overview, uh, we start dieting, we get into an energy deficit, and we start losing body fat as a direct result of that sustained energy deficit. Uh, body starts adding a little bit of friction to the weight loss process. Uh, and, and there are two stimuli that lead to that friction that are correlated, but not quite the same thing. So metabolic adaptation is driven by being in an energy deficit 
and it is also driven by the loss of fat mass. Okay, so those two things are certainly related, but they are not explicitly the same exact thing. Um, and so as we start dieting, because of those two stimuli, those two factors, leptin levels tend to be quite low when we're dieting, especially as we're getting quite lean. Leptin feeds into the hypothalamus. That's a, a, a key center of the brain, a structure of the brain that integrates a lot of information about energy availability. And so leptin levels get low, the hypothalamus senses that, and the hypothalamus says, okay, let's try to kind of tighten things up a little bit. Um, and uh, the metaphor that is, I think, uh, pretty appropriate is when your body or when your your uh, cell phone just automatically goes to like low battery mode and just tries to say, let's try to be as, as conservative as we can with energy, shut down some non-essential processes and just kind of really uh, streamline the way we're using energy. So that occurs during dieting. Total daily energy expenditure starts to get lower. The caloric deficit gets a little bit smaller and that adds some friction. And so, uh, you know, what a lot of people have proposed is that reverse dieting uh, might be a helpful thing uh, that is kind of almost like a proposed uh, remedy to metabolic adaptation. So if we imagine a scenario where someone has just done an arduous diet, so let's say a physique athlete, bodybuilder, figure competitor, whatever, they get really, really shredded, energy expenditure is low, and they're starting to have symptoms of relative energy deficiency in sport, right? So they might, uh, female competitors might uh, have disruption or absence of a menstrual cycle. Uh, males, a lot of times you see very low testosterone levels, low thyroid hormone levels across the board, a, a whole kind of uh, milieu of, of characteristics. Some people propose with reverse dieting that it is a remedy that might allow one to kind of work their way out of this state. And the idea is if we're just providing this little tiny caloric surplus, just a little bit, just in increasing calories over time, maybe we can uh, alleviate those symptoms of relative energy deficiency in sport maybe we can actually start to reverse those down regulations and total daily energy expenditure. But because we're doing it with these very slow incremental increases in calorie intake, maybe it's possible that we can do this stuff in the absence of meaningful fat gain. And so the idea is when you're dieting down, you're kind of chipping away at your calorie target. It goes lower and lower and lower as fat is getting lost. Some people have proposed, uh, you know, proponents of this concept that if you just slowly reverse that process and gradually increase calories, you'll get to this state where your energy expenditure is back up really high. Uh, your metabolic rate recovers, your hormone levels recover, but you're still quite lean. So that's kind of the theoretical concept is, you know, we, because they're, you know, fat loss and the energy deficit are both stimuli of metabolic adaptation what they're trying to do there is just target the one half of it and say, well, if we can get you out of that deficit and just ramp up calorie intake, perhaps we can unravel the whole metabolic adaptation concept and all of those various outcomes by simply getting you uh, in a very careful way in the positive energy balance. Um, and so that's the theory. And uh, we can go wherever you want from there. Yeah, there's a couple of parts of that that I'd want to break down that I always find kind of interesting. A lot of times where there are the biggest misunderstandings are where there are shreds of truth. And the idea that 
it is possible in a vacuum, just saying this sentence out loud, that when we eat more, metabolic rate increases, that some part of total daily energy expenditure does increase. That is true. Like if you eat more, your metabolic rate does go up and, and it can be a couple of factors. It obviously depends on lots of circumstances, but that is true. And so I think that my, again, because you're, you're the expert here and I, when I say something, if, I, if it's incorrect, jump in. But my biggest issues with this, and issue is maybe even overstatement, is the two blocks that I look at is the speed. So we're talking about reverse dieting. Something about the rate of this increase is uniquely giving a physiological advantage. Like reverse dieting, one of the purported benefits is because it's happening so slow, you get XYZ physiological benefit. And the second issue that I find with it is this, the absolute increase in what I would call your metabolic floor, let's say, where like the, um, you know, if we're gonna, we're gonna, I'd like you to go in, in a second to the idea that our metabolisms are flexible and metabolic phenotypes. But this idea that, if I just do this, then one day I'll be able to cut on, it'll make my next cut easier, or I'll be able to cut on higher calories next time. And if we're accepting of this idea that our metabolisms are arranged, we can kind of say that our metabolism has a floor and a ceiling at any given body size and activity level. Um, or there are other factors, but those be, being the two biggest ones, that the idea that I could raise my floor, that I could raise the number that I would have to go under to deficit if I do this reverse diet. Um, and so let's kind of break down this idea of metabolisms having a range and our metabolisms being flexible and how that might differ between individuals. Yeah. So we talked about one element, which is um, pretty, you know, for most individuals, when you start dieting, total daily energy expenditure is going to go down. Um, some of that is non-adaptive. It's just as you lose weight, you're a smaller person and that requires less energy per day uh, to keep the machine moving. Part of that does seem to be adaptive, where, where energy expenditure goes down by more than we would expect. Okay, so within that context, we can see a little glimpse of that uh, flexibility of, of energy expenditure and, and uh, you know, just substantial weight loss plus being in an ener energy deficit. Those seem, those seem to induce that adaptive reduction. On the other end of the spectrum, there are studies, uh, some overfeeding studies, where they take people into a lab at a natural body weight and they say, hey... You know how you normally eat 2,400 calories a day? What if you ate like 3,400 calories a day and you just did that from now on? Uh, and there have been really well-controlled overfeeding studies with aggressive overfeeding, high amounts of, of you know really large caloric surpluses. Uh, and what they find is on average, looking at the group average, uh, there, there is an adaptive increase in energy expenditure. And so what that means is the individual will still gain weight and they still gain fat. It's just less than we would mathematically predict um, because the same way we experience friction with weight loss, we see uh, at the group level some friction in weight gain as well. This adaptive increase in energy expenditure, largely driven by increases in non-exercise activity. So things like fidgeting and you know postural adjustments and things like that. So I, I mentioned, I, I put heavy emphasis on group level. Because when we look at individual circumstances, we see that there are two general metabolic phenotypes. And a phenotype is just kind of a set of observable characteristics that we can kind of group. And so uh, what, what we have is uh, most people will fall somewhere on a spectrum that ranges from a thrifty metabolic phenotype to a spendthrift metabolic phenotype. Thrifty is exactly what it sounds like. These individuals are good at conserving energy on both sides of the equation. Spendthrift individuals are the opposite. They burn through energy on both sides of the equation. So what that means is a thrifty person, uh, when they're dieting to lose weight, uh, they're likely to experience greater reductions in total daily energy expenditure. Uh, so kind of meta 
extra metabolic adaptation. When you overfeed someone in those studies uh, who has a, uh, a thrifty phenotype, they do not experience that same robust adaptive increase in energy expenditure. Now, eating food has the thermic effect. Of course, the thermic effect of food still exists, but there's no adaptive thing that adds friction and kind of ramps up their metabolic rate as a response to overfeeding. Now, spendthrift individuals are the opposite. When they start dieting, they actually have pretty pretty modest amounts of metabolic adaptation. It's not particularly large in magnitude, but when they're in, in these overfeeding studies, they ramp up energy expenditure like crazy when, when they're overfeeding. And so when we look at the range of responses in these overfeeding studies, it is remarkable how different some of these outcomes are. And we've seen that in real life. You know your friend who can eat whatever the hell they want. And they just don't gain weight. And when they overeat for one day, they, they like don't have an appetite for four days. You know, like we, we see this kind of thing where there are people who are innately uh, quite resistant to fat gain and other people who innately uh, are quite, um, quite efficient at gaining fat. So one of the really important things that chips away at this concept of reverse dieting is the fact that the people who would even look into this in the first place, the people who would have any interest in saying, I've got metabolic adaptation, I really need to reverse it so I can ramp up my metabolic capacity or, you know, kind of shift my energy expenditure up. The people most interested in this almost certainly by definition are, are relatively thrifty individuals by metabolic phenotype. And what we know from the research is they do not stand to enjoy that increase in adapt, you know, that adaptive increase in energy expenditure when they ramp their calories up. So it's an intervention that is best suited to help the people who are not interested in it whatsoever and is completely unsuited to help the people who would actually seek it out in the real world. Another critical thing when we're on this topic of overfeeding and underfeeding and these responses is when you look at overfeeding studies, and that's what everybody points to when they say reverse dieting, this is what you need after a diet. Well, none of those studies occur after a diet. <laughs> and there's a good reason for that. If you want to look at overfeeding responses, you have to get people in who are at their natural kind of typical body weight, because otherwise you're not overfeeding, that you're in a state of weight regain, which is a very different physiological state. Gaining weight from baseline at a natural, comfortable body weight is very different from ramping up food intake after a fat loss diet. Um, you know, as we've seen, just based on the weight regain literature and the the low success rates of in, in the long term, when we look at dieting interventions, if ramping up calories after a diet was something that, you know, supercharged your metabolic rate and, and gave you this robust response that helps you stay leaner over time, we would be getting glimpses of that in the clinical trials. And we simply don't. Um, and in fact, th there's very, very strong evidence across many different populations when we look at overfeeding responses or, or getting in positive energy balance after a weight loss diet, we see preferential regain of fat and a very efficient regain of fat. So the first thing that happens if we if we view it in stages early on after after a weight loss attempt, for example, and you just tell someone we're going to ramp up your calories and get you into positive energy balance. Uh Early on, you're going to see pretty efficient fat gain without a lot of adaptive increase in energy expenditure. 
uh, as that individual starts to get to their you know, around their baseline or, you know, kind of comfortable body fat level, we could view it as kind of if if you're familiar with like the um, the dual intervention point model, it'd be like once we get them past their lower intervention point, we might start to see, you know, some kind of uh, adapted, you know, things start might start to catch up a little bit there. Uh, but broadly speaking, when we when we characterize the physiological state after a weight loss attempt, uh pretty much across the board, we see a, a very high propensity to very efficiently regain fat mass. And so the, the big, one of the biggest issues, aside from the metabolic phenotype issue, is the fact that almost everyone who's putting out eBooks or courses or whatever about reverse dieting, when you ask them, you know, show me where this works, they always point to a, a physiological context that's totally irrelevant. And I get that, it, I would get that if there was no direct, directly relevant evidence available, but there is. Uh, we we have um, the Minnesota starvation experiment. Uh, there was a controlled overfeeding period where you could theoretically get a glimpse of whether or not reverse dieting works, and it doesn't appear to. Uh, there was even a study in physique athletes after competition, which actually, a fun fact, was supposed to be a more controlled intervention. But reverse dieting is such an untenable intervention, no one could really stick to it. And so then it became this kind of observational thing of, you know, does reverse dieting work? Uh, and, and once again, the, the the most relevant evidence, the most direct evidence uh, looks very, very disappointing for reverse dieting. And and just a, a small recap, I actually wanted, it's funny because there's a small tangent that I want to talk about this a difference between weight re regain in a weight reduced state versus or weight regain in baseline or kind of let's say a calorie surplus, um, which we can come back to in a second. But recapping this like thrifty versus spend thrift, um, but all everybody listening to this podcast, all of your metabolisms have the ability to upregulate and downregulate in response to over and under feeding. But the amount in which we do those is is has a genetic component to it. And usually what's happening if we're looking at the research, with their, which there is research, this is not you or us pulling it out of our ass, is that the kind of person who probably undergoes more metabolic adaptation is probably the same person. When I say that, they probably undergo more metabolic adaptation on the downward side of things when when they are underfed, when they're in a calorie deficit, they undergo more metabolic adaptation. Um, they're probably the same person who's less likely to experience uh, metabolic adaptation in response to overfeeding. Like they're less likely to ramp up metabolism in response to more food. My question is, when we talk about metabolic adaptation, we're really talking about the amount of calories beyond which science would expect based on just being, you know, having lost or gained Got gained weight. Is that primarily through additions or reductions in NEAT? Is that happening in both directions through NEAT? Well, uh, NEAT definitely plays a role, but it's not the only component that's being changed. Um, so, you know, NEAT will change. There is some research indicate, indicating that um, the energy efficiency of structured physical activity can change a little bit. Uh, and resting metabolic rate seems to be most sensitive to just whether or not you're currently in a deficit or a surplus. You know, so I, you know, when, when people are at the end of a diet, it, it's not that overfeeding, you know, let, let's say you're a thrifty individuals, right? Right. You're, so you experience larger amounts of metabolic adaptation during weight loss, minimal incre adaptive increases in energy expenditure during overfeeding. So if you intervene right when someone is at the end of a weight loss diet and they're, they're still, you know, in a deficit, losing weight, and they say, I'm done with this. What do I do from here? It would be incorrect to say that 
ramping up calories would not change their their energy expenditure. They would experience an increase, but it the the increase they experience is merely the the impact from going from negative to either neutral or positive energy balance. So, like for example, uh, I, I picked up on this mostly as a researcher. So when when you're doing studies and you're you're going to be measuring you know, whether or not someone's metabolic rate is appropriate or I, don't, I shouldn't say appropriate, whether or not it is close to the predicted value based on their fat mass, fat free mass, et cetera, you must control their energy balance. So like a lot of studies, they they will actually like uh, some of Kevin Hall's work for, for like the biggest, the biggest loser cohort, they would actually show the data and say, these people were not in an energy deficit when we measured their metabolic rate. And the reason they went to those extreme lengths is because simply being in an energy deficit will lower your resting metabolic rate. And once you correct that, it will kind of restore that that reduction in resting metabolic rate. So what I, what I usually uh, tell people about this reverse dieting thing is, I'm not saying that resting metabolic rate won't change over the course of that reverse diet. But what I am saying is that if you just went from your deficit straight to maintenance, you would get a hundred percent of the benefit. You would get it more quickly. And all the other claims about reverse dieting, just they, they just lack substance. They, they fall flat when you, when you compare them to the evidence. So, uh, and I want to circle back to that, but let, let's say someone's listening and they're like, okay, cool. Like, all right, I'm interested in reverse dieting. I'm in a circumstance where I'm either eating uh, so little that I'd expect fat loss or I've been in a deficit for so long and things have stalled now and I still want to make progress, but I don't want to decrease calories anymore. And they hear us talking, they're like, okay, I might be the thrifty metabolism. And maybe I don't have as much capacity for upregulation of metabolism in response to more food. Like I'm just l less likely to benefit from reverse dieting in that regard. What if they're like, okay, I'm less likely or I have a less uh, total magnitude of benefit I could get, but why don't I go through, like the problem I have is everything we're talking about now assumes that even if you could ramp up metabolism, even if you did, by the way, cause you can, even if you if you do eat more, your metabolism will imp like go up, TDE goes up. But the problem I have is like that, that has that that means anything that that doesn't mean yeah. that you can then go back to you know it's like if you're not losing weight at 150 pounds at 1400 calories 10,000 steps a day there, there's nothing you can do to return back to the exact identical state of energy expenditure and intake and then lose weight with that many calories this is not there's no like i'm gonna go up and then i'm gonna come down and i'll come back to the same place and now i'll lose weight here i mean that's like the real yeah. problem that i have with it i think yeah, that, that highlights a point that I make in the article that I failed to acknowledge in this conversation, which is, uh, yeah, the time course, the I guess the persistence of these adaptations. So one thing that I point out in the article is, let's say hypothetically, you are able to get some adaptive increase in energy expenditure through a controlled period of overfeeding. Um, that's great. But we have no reason to believe that when you uh, drop back down and say, OK, I'm going to start my fat loss phase again, we have no reason to believe that that transient increase in energy expenditure will persist. Uh, and actually, we have very strong evidence to suggest that it will not. Uh, so, for example, I talked about uh, thrifty metabolic phenotypes and these people who experience larger down regulations and energy expenditure during weight loss phases, we can identify that in one day. That's all it takes. Uh, so, so what that means is we can look at your response to one day of fasting 
and determine if you have a thrifty or spendthrift phenotype. So yeah, sure. Let's say you were able to increase energy expenditure through whatever process you took uh, with, with all sorts of you know dietary manipulations and things like that. The moment you get back into a deficit, we have every reason to believe based on the evidence that whatever was gained there is immediately lost. Okay, I'm, I'm really, we're going to tangent here, but this is an important, because I love that point. My, my follow-up question out of just curiosity is, we have research now extensively on diet breaks. There's been research by Bill Campbell, research by Jackson Pios, and we have basically come to somewhat of a conclusion that these transient improvements in whatever you would call diet fatigue, based like physiologically, psychologically, whatever those things are, whatever things are happening, increase in leptin levels um, is transient while you're eating more. And when you return back to your deficit, you are not carrying over any of those like things that have changed physiologically. You might carry over a good feeling and that might be, you know, we're basically, we're coming to this conclusion again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that these, a diet break would be, have more of a practical benefit where it's like, hey, if you, if, if you know, I imagine that let's say you're like running a marathon and like you pass a water station and you're like, well, maybe stopping at this water station, you know, uh, actually if this is a bad analogy because the water you drink there would benefit you going forward. but pit stopping and taking a diet break has more of a practical benefit than a physiological benefit. It has more of a, if I take a quick breather here, I'll feel good going to the next stretch of time or, you know, just from a human psychology, compartmentalizing our efforts can be a better idea than trying to take on this big marathon goal. And so how can we extrapolate what you and I are saying right now, where it's like, hey, yes, if you eat more, we you will see, uh, You'll let's not get too scientific. You'll feel better if you eat more. And yeah. If you then go back to eating less, you're not carrying with you anything that are going on behind the scenes. You might carry with you a good feeling, but physiologically, you're not carrying with you adaptations that now will take a long time to come. You're going to go right back to where you were. And so what is the point of taking, uh, we can talk about diet break, but I think people are still distinguishing between a diet break and like a maintenance phase in between a deficit. Do they both just in longer time scale, the shorter time scale, are they both doing the same thing of just like trying to make you feel better so that you can get back to the deficit? I do think uh, that, that they're very similar in the sense that they are largely beneficial due to psychological, subjective and behavioral things. Uh, I, I, you know, like people have asked me physiologically, what's the correct length of a diet break? I mean, physiologically, there's no answer to that. It's how, however long you feel uh, is going to be best for you, uh, purely based on subjective, you know, just how do you feel, do, you know? So like, I'm not against, uh, maintenance phases or diet breaks, uh, at all. I, I, I think they're very useful tools, but usually what happens is working with somebody, we're running into some friction with weight loss and we're looking at it and it's just feeling kind of bleak where we're like, listen, physiologically, psychologically, I'm, I'm kind of over dieting right now. You know, I'm, I'm kind of tapped out. I've got the diet fatigue going on. And so a lot of times what, what I'll say is, well, Hey, let's just, let's just pump the brakes. Let's not do anything too rash. Let's not, you know, go a hundred miles an hour in the other direction, but let's just get to maintenance. And so when we shift from a deficit to maintenance, like I said, we should expect a little boost in metabolic rate. Um, you know, nothing magic there, but it's just being in a deficit tends to, to cause a reduction in, in metabolic rate. So getting out of that deficit, we'll be able to eat a little bit more because of that, that bump in metabolic rate. Um, you know, we will probably feel a lot better. We might notice that some of our 
if any hormone levels were being suppressed just because we were pushing so hard with the diet, we might see that maybe some of those improve a little bit. Uh, if you're shredded, not going to happen, but you know, uh, you know, relative energy deficiency isn't just a body fat thing. It, it could be just that the deficit was too big. Um, so, so there might be, you know, you, you might do this diet break or this maintenance phase for however long it takes for you get, to get to a point where you say, okay, I'm ready to dig back in and do a big push here. So it's, it's really more about, you know, pushing hard and then, you know, just kind of pressing pause and say, Hey, let's tread water. Let's catch our breath. Let's build up the the motivation to do another deep dive and really dig into it. And, you know, sometimes, uh, I, I think it can be very helpful to just kind of gather that motivation, press pause, and, and just not try to force it until you feel like you're really ready to push it. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll recommend when we are ready for that next big push, you know, because a lot of people are going to be thinking as they hear this conversation, well, when I reach, when I start hitting friction on a weight loss phase, am I just screwed? Is that it? Right? Because if reverse dieting doesn't help, reverse dieting is often kind of marketed as the the last resort <laughs> you know like if you struggle with weight loss this is the last lever you can pull and you better hope it works the problem is based on the evidence it doesn't work and no one seems to be worried about the ramifications of that <laughs> so if you're selling it as something as the last resort and it doesn't work then what uh so that that's one of the reasons you know, people might look at this article and say eric this is so pedantic who cares 60 pages about this crap who cares I, I care because you cannot say this is your last resort and look at the evidence and say there's no reason to believe this is going to do anything it's supposed to do. And then say, oh, you're past the last resort. Damn, that sucks. There, there ha you know, we have to have better solutions in place than that. And so the, the solution that I often propose is, OK, last time we ran into friction, we were hitting some diet fatigue. Um, now, if you're absolutely shredded, that's the cost of doing business. Being shredded is not a fun place to be. So sometimes you have to just talk with someone and say, hey, I know that you want to be 5% body fat all the time, but part of that is how you feel at 5% body fat. And there's no way around that physiology. But in, in a lot of cases, what we find is that people are just pushing too hard too fast. And so I'll say, let's take a diet break. Let's regroup. Let's kind of build, muster up that motivation where, where I am almost kind of holding you back. And then you say, no, I insist that we do another deep dive, right? So psychologically that's beneficial, but I'll say, let's take it slower, lower rate of weight loss, smaller daily deficit. You know, so if we were experiencing some relative energy deficiency symptoms because of the size of the deficit, we, we can, you know, we can rectify that and minimize that impact, but let's go slower and let's focus on some behavioral things and some habitual things and some structural changes to our approach so that instead of just making these little incremental changes that get more and more and more and more painful as we go, maybe there are some bigger picture elements that we can address here so that our next deep dot, you know, the next time we really dig in for a fat loss phase, maybe instead of making it just pure willpower versus physiology, we can lean on behavior and habit formation to kind of offload some of that willpower. So usually what I tell people in that situation is if we're just shredded, we're probably reaching some physiological limits that we have to just wrestle with and philosophically consider is put continuing to push actually what you want. Um, but in most cases, what we're running into is 
we need to make some bigger picture structural changes to the approach so that it becomes a more sustainable long-term trajectory. But we shouldn't be running into like physiological brick walls until we're we're already, you know, in, in most cases, pretty lean. Now, every, everybody's going to be different. Uh, different. I should acknowledge, you know, how someone feels at 8% body fat is how someone else feels at 13% body fat. But what I'm saying is early in the process, when we're running into that friction, th that's kind of more what I'm referring to. Yeah, there it's just, what I'm hearing is that this process of is this process of like, uh, you know, what to do with a client and their calories and how to get them from point A to point B is more of a coaching the individual in front of you and working on a strategy that's going to make them the most successful. It's not about, you know, what are you doing that's messing with your metabolism? How do we fix it? It's it's more of let me look at this individual and their habits and behaviors and maybe genetic components as well. And let's see what strategy is just going to make this person practically based on their lifestyle factors, personal preferences, genetics going to make them the most successful. Not like, oh, we, you know, we're I'm going to teach you this thing that universally is going to fix your metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the more I've been in this, I mean, I, you know, my, my PhDs in human movement science, all my research that I did was in nutrition, metabolism, things like that. I wish I could tell you it's a physiological hack because that makes me feel more useful based on my training. The more I do it, the more I see that the, the big stuff is behavioral. It's, it's habitual, it's psychological, it's, it's intervening. And when you say something psychological, people almost uh, apply some degree of like blame to that where it's, oh no, the challenges are in your head. Well, no, no, no. The solutions are in your head. You know, like we, we can find ways to restructure behaviors and habits and the subjective experience to make a very challenging process less awful. <laughs> Weight loss is not fun. It's never been fun. It's never going to be fun. But there are ways that we can intervene, like I said, in in the realm of behavior, habits, psychology, we can make the experience subjectively more tolerable. And that's a very, very powerful thing. Uh, but yeah, the, the physiological hacks, we, we, we chase down refeeds. Uh, conceptually, theoretically, it sounded great. We did more research. It didn't pan out the way we hoped. Same thing has been true with diet breaks. And now reverse dieting is that third thing out there where people are like, well, if we just never study it, then we don't have to put the nail in the coffin. But like what I argue is that like it's almost hard at this point to justify doing the study um, in this. I mean, I'm not I'm not begging anyone not to. If you've got the resources, I think it'd be fantastic. But if if we were comparing two research questions and we had these resources available, you could almost argue it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to throw a lot of resources at this question because there's not even the the conceptual meat on the bone to to lend plausibility to the hypothesis, in my opinion. Yeah. And we could have led with this. I know we're like 30 minutes in, but I think I do want to just say to those listening who either themselves or someone they know or a coach they admire, you know, feels very passionate about this topic. It's often, be, you know, I took action X and got result Y, and thus my inference is Z. And a lot of times there's a lot to break down in that. And so if you are someone who's like, hey, this was my anecdote. Like I, I made a post the other day of just, it was slightly inflammatory, maybe just on purpose to spark a conversation of like, I don't know why you're not losing weight, but it doesn't have anything to do with not eating enough. And 
it got a lot of people was like, oh yeah, this, you know, but what if your metabolism is this and I need to reverse diet? And and so and I I increased my calories and I lost weight. That sort of uh, sentiment was recurring quite a bit. And we'll come back to that yeah. when we talk about some of these specific scenarios, but let's circle quickly back to uh, metabolic adaptation and ask two key questions. One is stopping you from losing weight. And two is the amount that people experience metabolic adaptation predictive of weight regain in the future. Two very good questions. Um, so is metabolic adaptation uh, essentially a brick wall in your weight loss process? The, the answer to that is no. So, uh, and, and I'll kind of answer the second part as I'm explaining that. So does metabolic adaptation matter during weight loss in a measurable way? It has an impact. We can measure the impact and we can quantify the impact. And I'm glad that researchers have done the work to do that. I think a lot of people think of metabolic adaptation as kind of an on-off switch. And they think once I get to the point in the diet where metabolic adaptation turns on, now we're in trouble and we have to abort the mission and figure out something to deal with that. That's really not the case. Metabolic adaptation is something that you know, the more aggressive the diet or the the longer it, it persists, we start to see it really manifest uh, in, in a, a gradual way. Uh, you know, there are some instantaneous impacts and then other impacts that kind of grow as the time course goes on. But but the biggest question is, you know, how much does it matter in, in numbers? You know, and, and that's the thing. I always tell people when you're following, you know, fitness influencers and people who make content, press them for magnitudes. Like, don't just tell me about a thing to worry about. Tell me the magnitude of the effect so I know how worried I should be. Um, and this is something that even early in my career, I, I did a really poor job of, is I would just focus on concepts, but not focus on magnitudes enough. So there have been a few studies in the last few years by Martins and colleagues. Uh, and someone might be might be reading this and saying, you know, or listening to this and say, well, Eric, you were talking about reverse dieting, like, kind of optimistically in 2014. I was, uh, damn it, <laughs> you know, but, but like, you know, a lot of this research has come out in the last five, six, eight years, you know, so things have changed and, and I'm, I'm updating, but, uh, it, within the last couple of years, uh, 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 Martins and colleagues have published some studies saying, okay, metabolic adaptation, to what extent does this really matter? And they'll look at a cohort of people who lose on average, maybe 14 kilograms, and they'll find the people with the really large magnitudes of metabolic adaptation, instead of losing 14 kilograms, they lost 11 and a half, they lost 12, right? And so it's like, dude, you lost 12 kilograms. That That is a successful diet by any metric, right? Like whatever you want to measure against, that is a very successful diet. So metabolic adaptation did not screw those people over. They were very, very successful. They just had a little more friction compared to their peers. Now they had another study that looked at it a different way. Instead of saying, okay, you have 16 or 20 weeks or whatever, see how much weight you can lose. They said, we're going to have you keep dieting until you lose X percent of your body weight. So everybody's aiming for the same target. What they were looking at is how long does it take you, right? And what they found was that, yeah, the people who experienced the most metabolic adaptation, it did take them longer, but we're talking about like, instead of getting there in, you know, X number of weeks, it took you an extra two or three weeks, right? So it's not like you had to, it's not like the one group, you know, one group of folks got there in six weeks and the others, it was like five years. I mean, we're talking about a few weeks on the end of a, a pretty long diet period. So when I, when I talk about metabolic adaptation in these days, I try to really impress upon people it's not a brick wall, it's friction. And the friction can be overcome 
in a very straightforward way. I mean, you, you could just lower your calories a little bit more, or you could just prolong the diet uh, timeline a little bit. And people will, will say, well, if I lower my calorie calories more, clearly I'm going to feel disproportion disproportionately way worse than the people who are di dieting on higher calories. That doesn't seem to be the case. Usually what is impacting during the course of a diet, you're kind of how you're feeling day to day in terms of your energy level um, and, and all those related like red S symptoms and things like that. Now, if you start getting shredded, you're going to run into that no matter what. But most of the time throughout most of the weight loss timeline, if you're not absolutely shredded, it's the size of the relative deficit. So it, someone who's eating, if you, if you tell me that one person is dieting on 2,500 calories, the other is dieting on 2,300 calories, who feels better? I truly don't know. I mean, it really depends on what is their total daily energy expenditure and how big is the gap. So when, when metabolic adaptation is adding that friction and I say, you probably need to lower your calories more if you want to keep the same rate of weight loss as people who are experiencing less metabolic adaptation, they're in a bigger deficit than you because of, because of metabolic adaptation. And paradoxically, they're probably feeling their diet a little bit more than you are because they're in a larger deficit. So, uh, does meta so there's kind of two questions. Does metabolic adaptation matter? Well, yeah, it makes an impact that we can measure, but does it matter a ton? Not really. Uh, and then when we talk, when we zoom out and talk about longer time scales, that little impact becomes a negligible impact. So what I'm referring to there is studies that look at they'll they'll look at how much metabolic adaptation you experienced during weight loss and how much did you actually retain one year, two years, even six years later. And what we see is that the metabolic adaptation you experience during a diet is not predictive virtually at all of your long-term success in terms of maintaining that weight loss. So the amount of weight, a lot of people kind of intuitively expect, if I experience more metabolic adaptation during a diet, clearly I am predisposed to precipitous weight regain far more than my peers, and I'm immediately going to regain a ton of weight. The evidence simply doesn't bear that out. The things that are really predictive of those longer term weight loss maintenance outcomes, it's not metabolic adaptation. In fact, it's not anything physiological. It tends to be consistent uh, monitoring of objective outcomes. So watching your calorie intake, watching your physical activity levels, keeping an eye on body weight so that you intervene before it starts to really creep up. So it's just self-monitoring practices. And then the other big thing is, is simply maintaining a high level of physical activity. Those two behaviors are so much more predictive of, of outcomes than metabolic adaptation that you can't even really frame them as, as on the same scale. I mean, it's so disproportionate. Could it be disproportionate? I know you you touched on some research in the article and in, in, in your podcast episode that those who were experiencing more metabolic adaptation actually had higher metabolic rates at baseline. Could that be something that is de decreasing the correlation between metabolic adaptation and weight regain pr pr predictions? I'm sure it's more um, complex than that, but that seems like two counter things where it's like, hey, the and and not to, I don't want to gloss over that. So maybe before we dive too deep into that, maybe would, you could just touch on a little bit of this this finding that you know we were expecting this this person who's metabolically adapting more to just have the shit end of the stick across the board and to start with lower metabolic rates and to thus have you know and also have more metabolic adaptation but that turned out not to be the case i i, I understand it yeah it's it's really interesting um the the whole thing with metabolic adaptation like thrifty and spendthrift metabolic phenotypes is that they seem to be very specifically 
relevant to perturbations in energy balance. So like if, if I told you I'm someone who experiences more metabolic adaptation than the typical individual, you might expect that at baseline, I have way higher body fat percentage. Uh, I have disproportionately lower metabolic rate relative to my body size. And what we see is that's typically not the case. You know, we end up seeing groups that, you know, aren't really all that different in terms of body composition. Um, you know, there, there have been a couple studies where the, the, the more thrifty individuals paradoxically actually have a higher energy expenditure at baseline, even after correcting for, for body composition characteristics. And so, you know, they are experiencing this, this reduction, it, it, it's kind of gets right at one of the claims of reverse dieting, actually, which people say, well, no, you're struggling with your diet because you don't have high metabolic capacity. And we need to build that up before you diet. But what we really find is that the people who experience more metabolic adaptation, they're already starting at baseline with higher energy, like they have all the metabolic capacity that one would hope to have. It's just that the relative change when they start to decrease calories or increase calories seems to differ among these metabolic phenotypes. And, you know, the extent to which that might explain the lack of correlation. Um, yeah, I haven't given that a tremendous amount of thought. Um, but, but to me, I think the biggest thing with that, the long-term adherence, when we look at a variety of different data sources is that it really just comes down to maintaining the behaviors that actually make the thing work, you know, just staying, keeping tabs on body weight, nutrition, keeping physical activity level high, those things just behaviorally seem to, to outweigh any variety of physiological predictors that you might throw in there. Um, so, so it, it does seem to be that the biggest thing that is predisposing individuals to regaining the weight is, uh, essentially abandoning the things that got them there. It, it doesn't really seem to be something that is, you know, some little physiological element that we can hack. I mean, if you were going to um, look at a physiological predictor, I suspect the strongest predictor, uh, aside from, you know, those behavioral things we talked about, if you wanted to go physiology, I think it would probably have to do with um, the, the way that the neural circuitry, you know, looking at neurophysiological outcomes, appetite, hunger, satiety regulation, I think are far more impactful than energy expenditure. And, and the research with energy expenditure, it just it just comes out in the wash. And one more thing uh, that I find kind of paradoxical, but but also intuitive at the same time, which in and of itself is a paradox. I understand that. But a lot of times people uh, will say, well, you know, the people if we look at long term, you know, six years after a weight loss period, who still has metabolic adaptation? It's actually the most successful weight loss maintainers. And now on one hand, that's paradoxical because you would assume anyone experiencing a lot of metabolic adaptation would be most likely to regain weight. Like I said, that's not the case. Um, but but the reality is, you know, the, the thing that makes it intuitive is we know what causes metabolic adaptation. It, it's being in a deficit, uh, particularly if it's a large deficit and having a a loss of mass, a loss of fat mass specifically. And so when we look at these long-term like six-year outcomes, it makes sense that the largest degree of metabolic adaptation at that time point is associated with successful maintenance of weight loss. Because if you've regained the weight, there's simply no reason to continue having metabolic adaptation. You've gotten rid of the two stimuli that actually cause it. So um, 
yeah, I, th I think behavior and neurophysiological elements of, of intake regulation are probably the biggest factors. And when we're, when we're talking about just like the, the pursuit of body composition related goals, like you could have two identical people. I say identical, I mean like, let's say body shape, size and activity levels that might start at different calories to achieve the same size deficit at the start. And they'll have different journeys uh, in terms of calorie reductions based on their differing levels of metabolic adaptation. They might end up in different places and they might feel differently along the way. And I just, I'm, I'm curious about the correlation between, because uh, the correlation between, like you said, it's, it's the size of the deficit that's more predictive of how you'll feel than the absolute number of calories potentially. Um, and I'm curious if that there, like the amount of metabolic adaptation would have, would correlate to subjective fatigue or hunger or discomfort. Like, and like kind of what we're saying that at the end of the day, it's going to be more leaning more on the side of the size of the deficit. But I do think that there's a confounder here where people have this like, I should mentality that ends up kind of poisoning the well a little bit where you have someone who's like, Hey, I'm, I have, I have this identical person I'm comparing myself to or not identical, which makes it even worse. And I should be losing on this, which almost brings an air of negativity to the whole experience where I feel like if people take a step back and look more objectively at their data and their biofeedback and the cost and the benefit and the juice being worth the squeeze and what the results are th that they are getting and what adjustments they need to make based on that. And they don't compare. I feel like a lot of people would um, end up getting less emotional about the absolute number they're eating and think more about, hey, how do I feel and what return am I getting and how do I kind of reconcile those two? But we get stuck in this like, I should be losing on more or I should be losing faster on these calories. When in reality, if you take the emotion out of the absolute number and you're just taking it, and then there's the whole like, we suck at tracking and so your your emotional attachment to this absolute number is already off because it's not actually that absolute number. Um, yeah. And I, and I feel like that, that tends to be something where you know, if there is no correlation or a very not nothing that we can see where, hey, if you experience more metabolic adaptation, you're also going to feel like shit, even at the same size deficit, which seems to not be the case. Um, I feel like people poison the well with the I should be sort of mentality. I'll have people that are like, well, I really should be. And I'm like, well, OK, well, you sh should f fuck the should for a second. How do you actually feel and how do you actually feel about doing X or Y to make the deficit larger? And I think if we just kind of sit with that in more of a vacuum, people would have a bit more success. No, I definitely agree. I think um, if there were some element of metabolic adaptation that in practice might predispose one to uh, a higher propensity for weight regain, it would be that psychological element. It, it, it's the uh, the comparison to one's peers. And especially on, on social media, it gets rough, man. You'll, you'll see these people who are like, well, I weigh, you know, 165 pounds and I'm, you know, 6% body fat, but I eat 5,000 calories a day and I'm, I'm going to act like that's normal. And so, yeah, people will kind of get, you know, get their, their heart set on, well, Hey, how come they're able to do this? And I'm, I'm over here eating like, you know, barely any food. It's, you know, by the time I get through my protein for the day, there's barely anything left over for the carbs and fats that I like. I, I think there is, uh, I think comparison can be a really negative thing in that context. And some people, um, the psychological element of deprivation is a lot more impactful than the physiological. Because like I said, usually when, when, you're, when you're in that spot where you have to make that additional caloric reduction, 
it's because you're just not in that big of a deficit anymore. And, and you know, you, you don't really have that that immediate uh, set of signals from from your body saying, hey, we're not making ends meet energetically. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a big difference between feeling the psychological aspect of deprivation and the physiological aspect of deprivation. Awesome. And we're coming up on an hour. I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to address two things in a bit more of a concise, direct manner. And I'm going to give it a smidge more of a challenge than I want to talk about. Go circle back around to the two most purported claims. One is that going slow will provide a physiological advantage. And 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 I'm throwing my own little spin on it. It's like, hey, let's let's pretend like we're And the second thing I want to talk about for people who want to stick around is this idea that. I was not eating on 1200 and now I'm losing on 1800 and it's because I did this reverse process. Like how do we reconcile someone's lived experience who says those words out loud? Um, but the first I wanna talk about is this idea that going slow from your end of deficit calories, when you've decided your fat loss phase is over back to your new maintenance, that going incredibly slowly will provide a physiological advantage. Now, the one caveat I would say is when you, when let's use the circumstance that somebody is at the end of a deficit and actually not in a deficit anymore, that they are stopping, that they have reached a new equilibrium based on a combination of being smaller plus metabolic adaptation, and they've actually hit a plateau. And so you can, again, correct me and, and go use your own wording, but I might say that that person is not in a deficit anymore. They're in a weight-reduced state. They're after post-deficit. They've lost some weight, but they are currently at energy balance, neutral energy balance. And going slow for that person does or does not provide a physiological advantage, either one in the context of, well, actually really the only goal of going slow that you will ever hear is you'll gain less weight. Like nobody can say that going slow will make you feel better faster than eating more quicker. I mean, nobody can say that. I mean, you're gonna feel better faster if you eat more faster, if you increase calories faster. So the only benefit here is, hey, you know, you're, let's use the example of, you know, someone is actually at a plateau. They've actually, they're actually have undergone metabolic adaptation to a point where this is, also technically neutral energy balance. Um, and going slow is what they need to do now. Otherwise, they'll gain weight. How are we reconciling that scenario? Well, uh, there's a couple things going on here. So, you know, let's say someone is still in a deficit. You know, they're at the end of their weight loss phase and they're truly in a deficit still, which means that they're still actively losing weight, but they're looking for the next step. Um, in this case, you know, the there's really no advantage of going super slow because it's just if the goal is to get out of a deficit, then the slower you go, the longer it takes you to actually accomplish that goal. And, and uh, <clears throat> what we've seen in the research is that, you know, physique athletes who try to do that, all they're doing is delaying their recovery from the diet. So we, we can look at, you know, pretty objective indices of, you know, are your hormones recovering? Is your metabolic rate recovering? And the more you delay that and, and mess around with those low calorie intakes, you're, you're just delaying that recovery from the diet. If you're experiencing any symptoms of relative energy deficiency, or, or if you're uh, experiencing pretty large magnitudes in, in uh, reduced energy expenditure. So if you're already in a deficit and the goal is to get out of it, the quickest way to do that is to do it quickly. You know, it's kind of self-evident. Um, you know, some people have said, well, you, you need to do it slowly because uh, there's going to be some, some advantage that ramps up your expenditure or unravels some of that, the hunger and satiety dysregulation. So you're setting yourself up for a leaner off season or attenuating weight regain. And we actually have pretty direct evidence uh, from the Minnesota starvation experiment where they took people who were as shredded as you could ever want to be. If this intervention was ever going to work, it would have been uh, 
really exaggerated within this cohort. And they, they took four different uh, groups of individuals, refed them at four different, very controlled rates. Um, one thing that's funny is along the lines of my previous point, the researcher noticed when the slowest group, he's like, dude, they are not recovering and it is unconscionable to continue to going this slow. So they actually updated it and ramped it up even faster. So if you look at the at the, the rate of weight regain, you'll actually see a point where it changes because the researchers are like, that essentially this reverse dieting thing is a disaster. This is not working. So they ramped it up anyway, right? So at the end of this controlled refeeding period, there was very, very large differences in how much weight was regained. And then they said, okay, now you're off on your own. Now you get to refeed in whatever way you say you see fit. The people who were were very controlled and slow and attenuated that initial phase uh, over the first couple months of weight regain, they immediately caught up and, and the fat gain and the weight gain just immediately caught up to the people who just went fast from the start. So, so that, that really detracts at a lot of the claims pertaining to reverse dieting. Now, for someone who is, you know, you, you mentioned the scenario where uh, well, let me reframe let me reframe the scenario really quick because I think yeah. I think it'd be more appropriate this way just to put another layer on it is like I don't think I've ever had a client end a diet in a 500 calorie deficit. Uh, you know, right. normally yeah. it's at a point where you're you know an unmovable object meets in a, a, a force or whatever, and so this person's presumably in a smaller deficit. When, and again, it's only practically. This is not, there are circumstances you could be in a 500 calorie deficit, and we're going to get out of it. And so, your let's say I have a client who's uh, you know getting towards the tail end of a deficit that is again uh, client driven. They're getting to a point where either weight loss has slowed, and what I need to do to move the weight loss quicker or recreate a larger deficit, I don't want to do. So presumably, my deficit has shrunk because I've shrunk and I've undergone some temporary metabolic adaptation. And so now my deficit is in the 100 to 300 calorie range, which is, you know, not nothing, but it's slow weight loss, let's say on the slower end. And your position might be whatever amount you're still in a deficit, that is, again, we can't know these things for sure, but just conceptually, that is the amount that there is no, there's no use wasting any time, do that chunk immediately. My right. kind of issue sometimes is that that number tends to be maybe on the smaller end at this end of the deficit because they usually are just two things that happen at the same time where someone is, the juice is no longer worth the squeeze when you're not getting a lot of juice and you don't wanna squeeze more. And so it tends to be this idea of like, you don't need to go slower than you need to go. You need to get out of an energy deficit ASAP, but that number actually practically might not be at, it's not like you and I are talking about, yeah, you could bang on 600 calories. Um, unless you are in a 600 calorie deficit, which of course we can't quantify yeah. so precisely. Is that, is that like, how do we reconcile that? So, I mean, there is uh, in my article, there is one particular use case where I say, yeah, something like reverse dieting might make sense. And I think it might be the scenario that you're getting at, which is, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but every now and then I'll, I'll be working with a client who's getting to the end of a diet, um, weight loss is starting to slow, you know, like you said, deficit by extension is shrinking. And they say, you know, I want to transition into a maintenance phase, but I'm pretty adamant that I don't want to regain weight. You know, we work so hard to lose this, this body fat. I really don't want to regain it. Uh, clearly we're with, we're already within striking distance of our maintenance. So it's not like we're going to be missing out on a lot of time. If we go slow, we're, we're going to be making small, small chunks anyway, to get back there. So I, I, I do in the article mention, if, if you genuinely don't know where your maintenance is going to be, uh, because you're, you know, you're not like what I 
usually like to do like if, if we have good tracking of their energy expenditure, like using some kind of technology, I'd like to lean on that a little bit. Not not like a wearable, but like with, with our diet app we designed, we we have a running estimate of energy expenditure that helps guide us a little bit. Um, but but that's kind of more of a deterministic algorithm that a lot of people aren't going to have access to. So that that's why I kind of extended out an olive branch and said, like, listen, I get it. If you know you're pretty close, but you're very adamant that you don't want to overshoot, sure, make a small change, see how body weight reacts, make another small change. So you can kind of get there slowly, incrementally. But but what's really happening there is no physiological magic. We're not undoing anything. We're not, there's nothing special physiologically. That's just a a way to approach getting to maintenance that errs on the side of just, I really don't want to regain fat by mistake. I don't want to overshoot it with an assumption and then find later that I, I, you know, oh crap, I overshot it. And now I undid some of the fat loss. Now I would argue that even if you overshoot it a little bit, it should be, you should pretty quickly see that and, and course correct to the point that the, the fat you or it's unintentionally, it. yeah. I mean, the fat that you unintentionally gained would, would be fairly negligible and very easily correctable. But either way, I, I do acknowledge that if it like sometimes I'll work with a client, it's not even a physiology thing. It's just like I we just work so hard on weight loss that it takes a leap of faith to say, let's bump our calories by 200 or by 250. You know, even that small amount, some people are going to say, that makes me uncomfortable. And I'd say, fine, let's let's bump it by 25 calories or, uh, you know, 25 grams, yeah, of, this, calories, grams yeah. of that. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bump it by, you know, smaller increments. We'll bump it by 50 calories at a time and very quickly work our way up to that 200. So I, I do think that there can be psychological benefits of an incremental approach, but my main argument with um, with the article is that the physiological benefits that are usually the kind of front and center on the claims, there's really not much to be gained there. And there could be a downside if you always go this very slow route. There might be some clients where it's like, we need to get you out of this deficit and we need to do that expeditiously uh, just because there's no point in us wasting time. So if the deficit is still big, I think that a reverse diet is counterproductive if it is, if the deficit at the end of the diet is very small, then you could say, okay, there's no, no physiological benefit there, but based on the individual, maybe it makes sense psychologically to just take slower increments to get to, to that true maintenance. But if they're already genuinely at maintenance, so if, if you're at the end, if you're calling the diet because you are fully plateaued, then there's basically one of two options with a reverse dieting strategy that you're going to carry out. One is that you're just going to have them regain fat. Uh, which probably they're not going to like. The other is, for some reason, they have a very adaptive metabolism. You know, they have an extremely spendthrift phenotype, and they're probably not going to be the person who's begging you, "Come on, we got to work calories up," because they're they're not experiencing a great deal of metabolic adaptation anyway. And so it's one of those, like I said, with the interventions, like it's for the people who least want it, and not helpful to the people who most want it. I, yeah, I would even go. I would even go further and say it's the same strategy for the person who ends their deficit in a large deficit and the person who ends it in a smaller deficit. The goal is to get out of that energy deficit asap, and just ha just so happens that in one of these hypo uh, hypothetical situations, one person's in less of a deficit, so that that immediate jump to neutral energy balance to maintenance will be in an absolute sense smaller, but accomplishing the same task. Um, yeah. The second scenario that we're talking about here, it's like, hey, you know. You know, Eric, I read your article, but I had this experience where I was eating 1200 
and now I'm eating 1800 and I'm losing weight or I've increased this amount of calories and I've not gained weight throughout this process. Um, feels to me a little bit more of a clear cut answer of like, that's just not happening. Like there's nothing physiologically under the hood that like we, we like I'm, I believe you that that's a lived experience that you've had, but chances are there's a, you guys use parsimonious as the word, which I love. There's just like a likely a simpler answer. So we'll get to that in a second. Um, now let's circle back to that now because we're, we're heading up on time here. So, so you mentioned the four illusions and uh, you can expedite that and go with an abridged version, but kind of these four things that might be happening um, that might be a more, physiologically correct, more correct thing that could be happening. What are those and 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 how can we talk through those? Yeah, two quick caveats. Uh, first of all, throughout this interview, sometimes I lean on a little bit of snarkiness. That's directed at myself. That That's me saying, damn it, Eric, you should have picked up on this in 2014. So I don't want to sound like a smart ass. I, I, it's more of a self-deprecating kind of snarkiness uh, that you're picking up on in my voice. The second thing is, I try to be really, really clear about this in the article. I am not faulting anyone who has been really drawn in by the claims of reverse dieting because I did. You know, in 2014, I said, wow, this seems like an interesting idea. I'm very optimistic. So I'm, I'm not being dismissive of that. And I'm certainly not uh, rejecting the lived experience of people who said, well, I did this and it seemed pretty good. But what I do offer is four explanations that I think are more plausible and far more compatible with the evidence available. So number one, we do have evidence on people who say, I'm eating 1200 calories a day and I'm not losing weight. I got the metabolic adaptation bad. Um, usually what's happening there um, in the studies that go out and recruit those individuals specifically, they're very drastically under-reporting their intakes and over-reporting their physical activity levels. So sometimes people say, well, all this metabolic adaptation stuff, how do you explain those people? And there is research literally, you know, very directly addressing that. Um, when it comes to people who say, well, but I had this really positive experience with reverse dieting. I ramped up my calories and didn't gain a lot of weight. There's a few things going on there. Um, first of all, people, what people with the naked eye would view as their maintenance calorie target can actually be a pretty broad range, even if we ignore the fact that it can change with, with, you know, deficit surplus, et cetera. So usually if, if you're like 150 calories under your maintenance target, it might take you a very long time to actually notice that via changes in scale weight. I mean, a kilogram of fat to lose a kilogram of fat takes like 9,400 calories of an energy deficit cumulative. So it can literally take months to even notice, oh, I thought I was weight stable, but I think it might be trending downward. And that works on both sides of the equation. So a lot of people thought they were at maintenance when they were actually in like a 200 calorie deficit because it's hard to pick up, especially with day-to-day -day weight fluctuations. It's really hard to tell that you're only in a one or 200 calorie deficit. You think you're weight stable, and the same thing goes with a one to 200 calorie surplus. So some people say, well, how do you explain these 400 calories I made up? And it's like, it's very possible that you went from a 200 calorie deficit to a 200 calorie surplus. And it just takes a long time to lose or gain weight. Uh, and that's another kind of illusion there is that calorie intake is instantaneous, but body weight is, is cumulative in nature. So some people will say, well, oh, and I, in the article, I have numerical demonstrations that are really eye opening of like, holy shit, that's crazy. But like I walk through an example where I say like, yeah, in this example, it looks like they ramped up their energy expenditure like 600 calories a day or 800 calories a day. But in reality, like people will talk about I reverse dieted over eight weeks 
and ramped up my energy, my, my calorie intake by like a thousand calories. And it's like, well, you start in a small deficit and you, you really haven't accumulated enough of a surplus to, to, you know, like I said, one kilogram, 9,400 calories of accumulative deficit. It takes a long time to gain a significant, a substantial amount of fat even if you're in like a 600 calorie per day surplus. So a lot of people are going from a decent deficit to a very sizable surplus, but they're doing it over a relatively short time scale in the grand scheme of things. And that's why we're not seeing a precipitous accretion or accumulation of fat masses because the math just doesn't work. It, it, it takes a very long time at a pretty sizable caloric surplus to really add several kilograms of fat mass um, and, and so those, those are kind of the two or the, the, I think that's the easiest way to summarize the biggest illusions, but the, the one other one I will add on there is consistency with tracking and adherence. So, um, like I said, it's very common in situations of what appears to be substantial metabolic adaptation that we see that there's just some inconsistency or some errors in tracking, which is common, even registered dietitians, highly trained nutrition professionals in studies, they might underreport their intake by an average of like 20%. I mean, th there are massive, it's very, very hard to meticulously track your intakes on a consistent basis. And so one of the things about reverse dieting, it's kind of a beautiful little like psychological trick is imagine I tell you, we are doing a very nuanced physiological intervention. And in order for this to work, I need you to increase your carbs by five grams this week or 10 grams this week. That necessarily implies that for this to work well, you need to track your intakes with a level of precision that almost no person has ever achieved for a considerable amount of time, right? So like if being 10 grams off with your carbohydrates ruins the intervention and renders it useless, you must have a level of tracking precision that is probably the most precise you've ever tracked in your entire life. So if you go from a, a situation where you were kind of tracking okay, maybe you had some errors, didn't necessarily track all your condiments and sauces, uh, it's very possible that when you go from that state to trying a reverse diet, you simply find three or 400 extra calories because you have ramped up your the precision of your tracking to a level that is fundamentally different than the previous state you're comparing your intake to. So those are kind of the main illusions that feed into these anecdotes where people say, but but I know that I'm eating 500 calories more and maintaining the same body weight. It's like, well, over what time scale? And what exactly did your tracking look like previously? Usually we can find a solution or kind of find a find an explanation that makes a lot of sense mathematically without any assumption of a physiological change. And, and and then even if you, even if that did happen, like this is the part that's like, even if that, what you said just happened, even if you're like, yeah, I increased 500 calories, I haven't gained any weight. One, we have to go through these four illusions. How, what was the time scale? Did you improve your consistency and accuracy? Um, you know, yeah, I think those are the two big ones. And then you're looking at, we're looking at illusion number two here. Even if that's actually what happened, you've been, you know, there's somebody listening to this, they're like, no guys, I've been tracking accurately. I weigh and measure everything as accurately as a human being can. And I'm eating 500 more calories and I'm not losing weight. That's great. Let me just like, amazing. That's a place that you could have always gone to. This is Clearly you are probably in the spend thrift category and you were able to metabolically adapt upwards, your TDE increase, you're able to burn off those extra 500 calories. So whenever this is somebody's like, hey, I was eating 1500 now, I'm eating 2000, I haven't gained any weight. 
Yeah, okay, I, you weren't tracking accurately. No, I was. Uh, what over what time scale? Over a, two years. Okay, great. Let's say that is true. Then it is what you what you did was got to a place you could always get to, and what you did has nothing to do in a predictive sense with how your next cut will go. It didn't bring up your metabolic floor in any way. And so it's like, and, and PS, you opened with us like, hey, I'm not attacking anybody who's fallen for this. I, I would even go a step further. I'm so happy when people when people came on my page and like, absolutely not, this was my experience. I'm like, dude, that's fucking awesome. It's awesome, yeah, yeah. not because you hacked your metabolism in some way, but it sounds like you made some other change and your end result from those changes is you feel better now. And I'm so happy about that. Your quality of life has improved, amazing. Like we're just here to kind of make sure that we're all, I think there's value in also understanding why it happened, but I always laugh because it's like, if you actually were doing this, which requires some a prerequisite of questions, uh, if this actually did happen, then you just got to a place you could always get to via you know your your metabolism's genetic ability to respond to overfeeding by burning more calories. And that is not predictive of, I can cut on higher calories now. So I don't wanna be like a whoop-de-doo thing because again, that is actually awesome. I mean, if somebody yeah. was eating 18, now they're eating 22, I applaud you, that's awesome. It's a better quality of life. Most likely it's easier to live in our food environment with more food. Um, you know, we could talk about whether or not you actually feel better that way, but I'd say most people probably do. Even if it's in your head, you probably do. Like that's a wonderful experience, but you probably got somewhere you could always get to. And this is not increasing your metabolic floor in some way, just because you reached the upper end of your maintenance at a certain body weight and activity level doesn't mean you've increased the bottom end of that so that you can now cut at higher calories and you know the next cut will be easier and all of that stuff. So I just kind of find it as like a no, yeah. it just doesn't lead us to a root of like you did anything that was in some way hacking something. Yeah, it, it's a positive transient state, uh, but but it, like you said, it, it's very unlikely to carry over in a meaningful way into a, a future fat loss phase. But yeah, when people achieve something like that, that they were trying to achieve, I think that's fantastic. And I have no interest and no inclination to try to take the wind out of their sails in any way. The reason that I bring up all these pedantic arguments and run through all the numbers and talk about, you know, the, the reason I bring this up is because of the other side of that coin, the when you hear these success stories that could be explained by something else, it makes it very difficult for people who do everything as it's advertised and don't achieve that success. And the question is, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? I heard this was my last resort and it didn't work. So what's the resort after the last resort? Give up, try something else. You know, like it, it creates this sense of self-blame and powerlessness and just being out of options. And so that's why it, my pedantic argument here is not about saying, I want to explain to you why what you did feels like it worked, but didn't. That's not useful to me. And I'm not interested in that at all. But what I'm really, what I think is really important is making sure we understand what is going on here so that we are not putting people in that position where they, they try the thing that they heard was their last resort. It doesn't work the way they thought. And then they're figuring out like, well, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? Is this just, do? am I fully powerless with regards to controlling my own destiny in terms of my fitness level and my body composition? And that's a very important ramification that we we simply cannot overlook. Um, so so that's really the main point here is to, uh, you know, another thing that, that I'll note when it comes to these anecdotes is that the short-term positive anecdotes are plentiful. The long-term positive anecdotes are not. I always hear people say, I've been reverse dieting for 11 weeks and it's the craziest thing and I can't believe it and it's amazing. I don't hear about that when it's like, oh, I did this 18 months ago and I can't believe my luck because usually what happens is one of two things. That person who did it the way it was, they were told to do it 
they start to accumulate the fat over time. So over those 11 weeks, they thought they increased their maintenance by 500 calories. And it's like, well, guess what? You're actually just in a 500 calorie surplus and you haven't had enough time to gain fat. But over the next 10 months, you will have enough time and people will start to find after their successful reverse diet in the short term over time, wait, where, where'd all this body fat come from? I haven't changed my calorie intake at all. You were in a deficit the whole time, but it's cumulative in nature. So that's the one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is someone does this reverse diet. Maybe they're the person who's always going back and forth, diet, cut, or, you know, cut, or ramp up, cut, ramp up. They do this reverse diet for 11 weeks. It's like, I can't believe my luck. I'm eating a, an amount that I never thought possible at this body weight. They go to their cut, boom. Any transient gain that was observed, even if it was an illusion, gone. And they're dieting on the exact same calories they used to diet on. So that's why the short-term anecdotes are all over the place. And the long-term anecdotes, I just don't see them much. And I think there's a, a really compelling set of reasons for that. I'm sure just like every... 30 day challenge or whatever we compare short-term anecdotes and long-term anecdotes. I made that post and I had a couple of really inflammatory back and forth com comments and I entertained them for intellectual stimulation, but there were multiple DMS, people who are quieter, who don't speak up. They were like, my coach had me in a reverse diet for, you know, 13 months and I gained 27 pounds, you know? And it's like, why well, you, your coach had you in a large bulking phase, you know, like, and so Dude, I, I've literally heard of people who, who their, their, their reverse dieting protocol after a diet, so you're, you're dieting, you're in a deficit. The first step is to go to maintenance, a predicted maintenance level. And then the second step is it's like an option. Would you like to increase your calories by 10% above predicted maintenance or 20% above predicted maintenance? And like, if you go to my website and say, Eric, what are your bulk recommendations? Yeah, yeah. A, a, a moderate bulk is 10, a 10% surplus and a, an aggressive bulk is a 20% surplus in my book. So literally that advice is like, would you like to bulk, but we'll call it a reverse diet. That's literally all the intervention is at that point. I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with just one selfish question. Then you, I'll let you get out of here. You had mentioned, maybe I open a can of worms here, but you had mentioned, okay, weight regain from a weight reduced state is, a, is different than weight regain from baseline. Just like you're in a different physiological state. You're more predisposed to fat gain. Practically mm -hmm. speaking, just from coach to coach here, if you're bringing somebody out of a deficit and they, their next goal is to be in a surplus, are you are you acknowledging that going straight from the deficit to the surplus has a downside or no matter what, because it's not just being in an energy deficit, it's being in a weight reduced state that we're gonna see this regardless of whether or not we take a pit stop and maintenance or we do go right into, you know, let's say pretend like you could be, you could know exactly the way to get into an exact 10% surplus, to pretend like you could do that. Uh, is there any value in pit stopping at maintenance? Or are you just acknowledging that no matter what, coming out of this weight reduced state into a weight gain phase will yield, whether we do it quickly or, or slower, or we stop in maintenance for a bit, or we jump right to that small 10% surplus because you're in the weight reduced state that the end result might be the same? Or are you encouraging people to take a pit stop at maintenance, for example? That's a great question. It's the one that I actually had to do a, pot, a little podcast segment update on our podcast to kind of say, this is a great question. I've got it several times. Let's address it. So I'll try to be as concise as I can here. Um, when someone is going out of it, they're, they're in a weight reduced state, they're ending a weight loss diet, a fat loss diet, and they want to get into a phase that really facilitates hypertrophy. What I usually say is I don't see a value in doing a pit stop at maintenance. I don't think that's going to really accomplish anything special for us, but I am extra particular about the size of the surplus we're aiming for, because you have to ask yourself, what is the role of a surplus during a hypertrophy focused muscle gaining block? 
it's not just to have a huge influx of calories. The calories are for specific purposes. The, the calories are to make sure that we're fueling training and then fueling the energy cost of building muscle. Now, we should theoretically, as long as we're not shredded at like essential body fat levels, as long as we're not absolutely shredded, we should be able to do a lean bulking phase in a weight reduced state. But what we have to do is be extra cautious about titrating the magnitude of that calorie increase. We what we try what we want to try to do is increase calories just that perfect amount where we're covering the cost of training and the cost of the the energetic cost of building new muscle tissue without going too far over because whatever we do going over that's the key difference in a weight reduced state. If we're bulking from baseline, that little amount we go over if you're if you have a pretty spendthrift phenotype you might just kind of burn that off. You know, you, you might have a little adaptive wiggle room there in a weight reduced state, regardless of your metabolic phenotype. We just don't have as much wiggle room there if we overshoot the size of that energy increase. So what we're trying to do is just titrate it just so, so that we are fueling it enough to maximize muscle growth, but we're not overshooting it in a way that is going to, you know, cause precipitous fat gain. Because I, like I said, we should still be able to access that hypertrophy without precipitous fat gain under two conditions. First, we're titrating the energy intake appropriately so we're not overshooting it because energy cost is is finite. It's not just, you know, throw in more calories and more calories. So we need to get we need to match that up really well. And we need to have a novel stimulus for hypertrophy. As long as we are stimulating the hypertrophy and and providing the appropriate amount of energy to fuel that process. I, I think we should still be able to achieve a lean bulk without needing to do a prior maintenance phase and without having to say, well, we, we have to accept this enormous amount of fat regain, but there, there will be some people who are just way too lean. And it's like, you know, when you look at a bodybuilder out of a, out of a prep, they're going to have to regain some fat before they start putting on some muscle. It's just, it, that's just the way it works. You know, the body does not want to starve to death. It needs to regain some fat. So if you're absolutely shredded, you should accept that. And you're going to want to accept it anyway, because you're going to feel like crap when you're that lean. Um, but, but yeah, so, but, but, but for most people who are not absolutely shredded, that that's the approach I take. And, and we should expect success as long as, you know, you're not, you know, the, the two people who are really going to struggle with that two types of people, one, like I already mentioned, absolutely shredded or number two, someone who is already like pretty close to their genetic limit for muscularity. Like they don't have, they sure. don't have many rocks they can turn over to robustly stimulate more hypertrophy, in which case I would also kind of question, why are you so adamant about aggressively pursuing additional muscle growth if there's just nothing left to get there? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess just generally sum up would be like slightly more conservative um, yes. in that, and, and slightly more precise and with slightly more risk and thus conclusively maybe slightly more conservative in that regard, which makes a ton of sense to me, definitely. Um, yeah, excellent, man. Su super great podcast. Really appreciate coming on, putting some uh, research behind some of these claims here. I appreciate your time. Just drop a whole bunch of stuff where people can find you, the podcast, uh, Macro Factor, all that good stuff. Yeah, strongerbyscience.com. Uh, you can find me there. We have a podcast. We have articles. You can check out the Mass Research Review. It gets published the first of the month every month. Uh, and you can check out the Macro Factor Diet app that I co-created with a really talented team of people. 
Excellent. Yeah. Wonderful temporary co-host of yours as well. Yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to link in the description to all of that stuff, but also the article. If you're someone who's like, Hey, honestly, I think that the article is like coincides really well with the conversation today. So if you're someone who's like, Hey, I'd really love a slightly larger dive into any one of those topics. I think the article has a deep dive into any of the topics that we talked about today. So appreciate that. This was, I, you had mentioned on the podcast, you're like, I wrote the article in the hopes of never having to talk about it again. And I really think that that's, you know, whether that ends up coming to fruition or not, I think it was a really good step into the you know, figures crossed that it's less of a talking point in the future. Yeah. I mean, when, when I write an article, that's always the hope is like, I just want to put everything I've ever believed about this, this concept in one place. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I like to talk about it and, and kind of disseminate it on podcasts like this, but uh, hopefully people will check it out. And it, I, I would, if I did an okay job, it should answer most of the questions that, that people have. Agreed. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.